It is my uh, pleasure to introduce uh, our first speaker here today. It's uh, Professor Craig A. Evans. For those of you who don't know Craig Evans, he's a distinguished professor of Christian origins at Houston Theological Seminary. He's a New Testament scholar, prolific author, and popular teacher and speaker. He's well known for his contribution to work on the Gospels, the historical Jesus, the Dead Sea Scrolls, and archaeology of the New Testament. He regularly appears in documentaries, TV, and radio interviews, and he lectures extensively and participates in archaeological digs and Holy Land tours. For decades, he has been engaging, his engaging style in live events, teaching, media, and the written word has brought the Bible to life for countless students, popular audiences, and seekers. And I know for me personally, he's had a big impact on my life. So with uh, no further ado, I just want to introduce you to Craig Evans, Dr. Craig Evans. Thank you again, Hello. Craig Evans. Hey, it's very good to be with you. And uh, I wish I could be with you, uh, you know, literally, physically, instead of being in South Texas, Houston. But I'm actually in the middle of a conference right now Whoa. and uh, just... 20 minutes ago, finished my own paper uh, in this setting. Now there, what I'd like to talk to you about is what was just introduced about archaeology and where it connects with uh, the, uh, historical Jesus. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, some pretty important things to be said about it. Let me begin with the cover of Biblical Archaeology Review. And I hope you can see this. And I'll put my finger on one item in particular. It's right there. This is the Isaiah seal. <clears throat> now, I know that uh, a seal or a bulla that uh, is concerned with Isaiah the prophet doesn't directly relate to the historical Jesus. But here's the point I want to make. There's an ongoing war for the last 25 years that's called uh, minimalism historical or biblical minimalism. There are scholars uh, who have said that, well, you know, we really don't know there was a history of Israel, that the books of Samuel and Kings, you know, we, as far as we know, they're just fairy tales and fiction. There might not have even been a King Saul, a King David, or a Solomon. It's just, it's just romance literature. It's the kind of literature that you have in uh, stories about King Arthur or Robin Hood or something like that. But a series of archaeological finds, including one I just showed you on the cover of Biblical Archaeology Review, continues to show again and again and again that these narratives that are in the Bible are in fact talking about real people, real places, real events, things that actually happened. This uh, Isaiah seal was found <clears throat> uh, just a few months ago at, south of the old city of Jerusalem in the area that's called the City of David by Eilat Mazar, granddaughter of legendary Benjamin Mazar. Two and a half years ago, she found a seal, that uh, clay seal that has the name Hezekiah the king on it. And she reports that about three meters away, or about 10 feet away, just a few months ago, they found 
another seal, and this one says Isaiah, or belonging to Isaiah the prophet. This is Isaiah, you know, he's the most important prophet, I think, of all of them. He's the prophet who lived in the 8th century B.C. He's a contemporary of King Hezekiah. He knew Hezekiah and spoke to him on different occasions. He comforted Hezekiah when Hezekiah was threatened by Assyria, by the uh, Assyrian king and dictator, Sennacherib. We all know what happens. The Bible says that after Sennacherib had conquered 46 fortified cities and besieged Jerusalem, demanding gold and silver, which he received, demanding that Hezekiah surrender, mocking the God of Hezekiah, Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament, laughing at him and saying, the gods of the other people, peoples that I have conquered, not protect them. Why do you think the Lord will protect you? And Isaiah went into Hezekiah and said, the Lord has heard your prayers. He has seen your tears. This king who threatens you will be no more. Abruptly, Sennacherib withdrew. The Bible story tells us he found most of his army dead. Historians speculate perhaps there was some kind of epidemic or plague, but whatever it was, he found it necessary to beat a very hasty retreat. He returned to Assyria, and not long afterwards, he was assassinated. He left behind what we call Sennacherib's prison. It's, a, it's, uh, it's not a cylinder shape, but it's a tall prism-shaped inscription. Talks about, he agrees with the biblical account. He captured 46 fortified cities. He besieged Jerusalem. He brags that he had Hezekiah the king like a bird in the cage. And then he abruptly withdrew. Why do you do that? When you have your enemy on the ropes, when you're ready to land the knockout punch, why do you go home? Well, the biblical account explains, well, it's because a disaster overtook him. Well, is this mythology? It turns out we actually have corroboration. The events did occur. We actually have now physical archaeological evidence from Sennacherib himself, who was no friend of Judea. We have the actual clay seals that were used to seal books, scrolls that were rolled up and tied with a string, and the clay seal was pressed on the string. And when later fires burned archives, these clay seals were cooked, became ceramic, which is why they survived hundreds and hundreds of years. We actually have now the name of Hezekiah on a seal. We have the name of Isaiah the prophet. This is just one of many ongoing finds over the last 25 years that show that the biblical narratives really are talking about people, real places, real events. Let me back up a little bit more. First, let me show you here is a picture of the Isaiah seal. You can see it on the screen. I hope you can. And on the top line, we actually, it actually reads belonging to Isaiah, and then the line below it is prophet. So it's Isaiah the prophet. But <clears throat> 25 years ago, some minimalists and skeptics were saying there is no real history of Israel. And then we found the Tel Dan inscription. And right on this inscription found at Tel Dan, which is in the northern part of Israel, just south of the Lebanese border. 
It actually refers to the house of David. And some skeptics immediately said, oh, this is a forgery. Someone forged it and planted it in the soil for the archaeologist team to find. And that was an insult to the archaeologist. He was angry about it. But the next year, while he's standing right there, they unearthed yet a second piece of the inscription. And the two pieces formed together. They joined together, thus confirming beyond any shadow of doubt the authenticity of the inscription. So here we actually have the name of the king of Israel, the house of David. And the inscription is not by the Jewish people, by the Syrians. They're not friends. And so here we are, you know, way up north, far away from Jerusalem, an inscription, a boundary inscription referencing the house of David, proving beyond a shadow of doubt that David was a real person. This inscription is not a forgery, and the inscription refers to the house of David and should not be interpreted any other way. Well, some said, okay, maybe David did exist. Was he really the king of a kingdom? Maybe he's just a tribal chieftain. Well, ongoing archaeology in Jerusalem, where we found the seal referencing Hezekiah, where we found just months ago a seal referencing Isaiah the prophet, a great palace and government complex have been uncovered. A complex of bureaucracy that is way beyond what would be necessary for a smallish city like Jerusalem 3,000 years ago. So it's, it's concluded that for the city to have such a large government building, it must have governed a large empire, not simply the city of Jerusalem and a little bit of territory around it. So it seems that there really was a kingdom of David after all. And no wonder a boundary mark was found so far north at Tel Dan. It's all beginning to come together. But you know, the skeptics never liked to give up. Minimalists then said, well, okay, maybe there was a kingdom. Maybe David was the king. But who was around to write the stories down? Could anybody really write 3,000 years ago? Well, it's almost like God is listening to all this skepticism and laughing and shaking his head, because not long after that, at a place called Caiapha, about 20 miles southwest of Jerusalem, another discovery made. A piece of pottery called Astrakhan is found with seven lines of Paleo-Hebrew written on it. And this Paleo-Hebrew demonstrated that indeed people could write 3,000 years ago. In fact, it's the kind of Hebrew that we find in the books of Samuel and Kings, the very books in the Old Testament that tell the story, of course, of King Saul, King David, Solomon, and their successors. Of course, skeptics don't want to give up too quickly, and they argue, well, maybe this isn't really Hebrew. Maybe it's a Canaanite language instead. They were similar back then. The alphabets were shared. And so maybe it's a Philistine city and not Hebrew. Well, the archaeologists pointed out, no, sorry, we are only finding kosher animal remains. We're not finding bones of pigs or dogs, which is what Philistines ate. The, the casemate construction of the walls showed it is, in fact, Jewish, not Philistine. And then, in fact, ongoing study of the ostracon suggests that it might actually be an announcement referring to the need 
someone like Saul become king. In other words, the Ostrakon might actually reach back to the time just before David, when Israel received its first king, King Saul. So it just shows you how minimalism is, is so wrongheaded, uh, rejecting the old biblical narratives. I'm, I'm sorry, the rejection receives no support from archaeology. I have found this, and I use this as an introduction to my other remarks. It just shows you how there's this stubborn resistance to what the ancients wrote long ago. I think some of it is modern arrogance. We think we're smarter, but we're more critical, we're more discerning, and the ancient peoples were stupid, and they were gullible, and they believed anything they heard. And shame on us for thinking that way. People 3,000 years ago were very smart, educated. Many of them were literate. They knew the difference between history and myth. They knew how to write history. They knew how to tell their stories in a way that made sense. Archaeological discoveries have been showing that. After all, if the books of Samuel and Kings were nothing but myth, if people like Saul and David and Solomon were just mythological figures, if these stories were nothing but fairy tales, why would archaeology support it? But archaeology supports it because these biblical narratives are real history. They're actually talking about real people. No, I don't mean to say that the way the biblical authors wrote history 3,000 years ago is the way we prefer to write history now. Obviously, there have been changes. Well, now let's fast forward to uh, 2,000 years ago. Let's go to the first century AD, the time of Jesus and the New Testament Gospels. And that's what my talk is mostly focused on today. I cite the Old Testament minimalism because it illustrates well some of the unfounded skepticism that you hear circulating regarding the New Testament Gospels. So there are several things we can say about the New Testament Gospels. One of them is some people will say, well, how do you know the New Testament Gospels are the ones that tell the story about Jesus most accurately? Maybe we should read some of the Gnostic writings. After all, that's what Dan Brown said. His fictional character in his novel, The Da Vinci Code, uh, the character called Sir Lee Teeping, why he knew everything. He knew there was a conspiracy, the Vatican's involved, of course. Emperor Constantine chose the Gospels, chose the ones that uh, depict Jesus in mythological, supernatural terms, instead of the Gospels that was real Jesus, the man who was in love with Mary Magdalene, and so forth. Of course, how silly Dan found to write this way. It's the exact opposite. When you read the Gospels of the New Testament, you have the incarnate Jesus. You have the Jesus who really is human. When you read the Jesus of the Gnostic Gospels, he isn't human at all. People can see through him. Maybe his feet don't even touch the ground. Uh, he, he denies his humanity. He's just this heaven being just talks on and on about the different layers of heaven and all kinds of secret knowledge you're supposed to acquire if you're to be saved. And this Jesus in the Gnostic Gospels bears no resemblance to anybody in the first century. These Gospels completely lack verisimilitude. So here comes archaeology once again into the picture. I am personally acquainted with several archaeologists they're not all Christians. Many of them are Israeli, 
people like Lonnie Reich, Gabriel Barkai, Kurt Rave, and others, and some of the archaeologists I know are Christians, like James F. Strain, Florida, and others. And they make use of Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and the Book of Acts, and also the historian Josephus, all the time. I know them very well. They read Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, and Josephus, so they know where to dig and how to understand what they uncover when they dig something up. Why? Why do they do that? Because they find these Gospels, New Testament Gospels, the first century Gospels, Gospels written in the time when many people who knew Jesus were still living. These Gospels accurately describe events in the past, accurately talk about the places and where they are located, how many miles from Jerusalem or where in Jerusalem. They accurately provide names of these places and so forth. And so the archaeologists find the New Testament Gospels very useful historical sources. I have participated in archaeological digs. They're costly. They're time-consuming. They involve 40, 50 volunteers who, at their own expense, fly to Israel, at their own expense, stay in a hotel, volunteer diggers. And without them, these digs could not take place. The archaeologist does not want to waste their time. He doesn't want to waste his time. The archaeologist wants to know where to dig wants to know the meaning of what is being dug up. And they find the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Nakes, very useful, accurate. Even if they're not Christians, they find the Gospels very accurate and reliable sources. And what's really interesting, you may get a different impression if you read Dan Brown, and you may get a different impression if you read some of the publications of the group called the Jesus Seminar. Uh, located, headquartered in California. You might get the impression from them that there are a whole bunch of other gospel sources that are very early, like the Gospel of Thomas, or the Gospel of Peter, or some of these other writings. They are just as valuable, just as historical, maybe even more so, than Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. But you know what? You find an archaeologist that agrees with that. I don't know a single archaeologist, in fact, I suspect there is not, a single archaeologist out there who makes use of the Gospel of Thomas and, uh, you know, the Jesus speaks secret thing, or the Gospel of Peter, so-called, that has a giant cross come out of, uh, out of the tomb Sunday, Easter Sunday morning. They know fiction when they see it. They know stuff that does not exhibit verisimilitude when they see it. But they do know that Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, and Josephus give, the, give us reliable history and very important information. And this is coming from Israeli archaeologists who do not necessarily think the Gospels are inspired, do not necessarily think that Jesus was literally raised from the dead. These are, this is coming from some scholars, some archaeologists who do not necessarily <clears throat> think that Jesus is God's son the Savior whose death on the cross results in forgiveness of sins for those who receive it. But they do see the Gospels as historically reliable, and the evidence continues to mount. In fact, one of the hardest questions uh, that I face when um, I, I give lectures on this topic, someone will always in the audience 
will ask the question, well, has there been an archaeological discovery that contradicts uh, one of the Gospels or shows that the, the Gospels, in fact, has made a mistake? And boy, I have to scratch my head, I have to think about it. And, you know, no, I'm not aware of one like that. We make discoveries oftentimes that, uh, <clears throat> that, that help us understand better uh, things that were obscure the Gospels. Sometimes we realize we have misunderstood one of the Gospels, we, like the Pool of Siloam, for example. We had it in the wrong location. And, uh, and then archaeologist, I think it was in 2004, Eli Chouton, discovered the real Pool of Siloam. I know Eli, I've, I've done tours in Israel with him, and we'll do another one next year. I've been to the Pool of Siloam, now that it's been uncovered, at least partially. <clears throat> Turns out the Gospel of John knew what it was talking about. There it is, the real pool, and uh, the other pool that's uh, connected to that water, but it's in the wrong location, uh, dates back to the medieval period, and it was simply the wrong location. The Gospels weren't mistaken. It was just later Christian uh, uh, tourists and pilgrims. They were mistaken. The Gospels had it right. It just took us a while to find that out. So there are dis there are discoveries like that. <clears throat> we have found the ossuary, the bone box. A bone box is designed for the human skeleton. It's taken apart, or what we say disarticulated. Look at the ossuaries that we have found. We have found on these ossuaries the names of some of the high priests. Most celebrated is the one that has the name of Joseph Bar Kaiapha, better known as Caiaphas, beautiful, ornate uh, uh, ossuary. Uh, and some have said, well, uh, how do we know that uh, the body of Jesus was actually taken down and placed in a tomb? Remember that theory some years ago? Jesus is left hanging on a cross. Uh, the dogs perhaps chewed up his body. Maybe he was never buried. And if he was never buried, then the gospel story of finding an empty tomb can't be true, because there was no tomb at all, at least no tomb anybody knew about, no tomb that anybody could visit uh, that Sunday morning. Well, what did we find with the Caiaphas ossuary? We found two crucifixion names. Now, it had nothing to do with Caiaphas or his family. They were elite people. They would be immune from such a fate. But we have learned you know, from these iron nails, there's human calcium attached to them. And what that shows is lots of people who were crucified were properly buried. And I know this sounds strange to us modern, but crucifixion nails were highly prized. They were talismans. They were, they were like a lucky rabbit's foot, we might say. And you'd want to have a crucifixion nail. and You'd place it in somebody's tomb, and it brought good luck and protection for the afterlife. So here is somebody who used to be the high priest for many years, Caiaphas, and he's buried with what? Two crucifixion nails? How strange. Well, 140 iron nails have been recovered from tombs. Now we're beginning to figure out why iron nails have been placed in tombs. They're good luck. But more importantly, we're finding that these iron nails were used in crucifixion and remained with the bones of the crucified people long enough that they acquired calcium deposits. And what all of this shows is crucified people 
like Jesus of Nazareth, were in fact taken down from the cross and placed in tombs, exactly as the four Gospels in the New Testament say. So this idea that the Gospels are making up the story, that Jesus wasn't probably buried at all, but probably left hanging on the cross, and Bart Ehrman not too many years ago suggested that, there is no support for that idea at all. And the archaeological evidence, in fact, contradicts it. So this is what I'm talking about. This kind of uh, archaeological evidence again and again shows that the gospel writers know what they're talking about. But it's not just archaeology as such, finding stones and glass and iron and bones and so forth. But the Dead Sea Scrolls, it's an archaeological discovery in a sense because the scrolls were found in caves. Some of them evidently were found in ceramic jars. And we all have heard about the 11 caves found near the Dead Sea beginning in 1947. My doctoral father, William Brownlee, was in fact in Israel in 1947-48. He and his friend John Trevor were there for different reasons. To, they had different study projects in mind, but the scrolls came to light. They photographed them and began to study them. Their lives academically were changed forever. It was my good fortune to study in 1977, until I finished my PhD, to study with William Brownlee. Well, the scrolls changed a lot. The scrolls showed that the biblical text, what we call the Old Testament, was in fact well-established and stable, that the Old Testament text we have today is not crazily different or somehow is mutated and evolved into something else, but it's the text of the time of Jesus. The great Isaiah scroll dates back perhaps as early as 200 BC. Some skeptics wondered if Isaiah 53 really was in the original book of Isaiah because it describes a suffering servant and the prophecy of Isaiah 53 matches the experience of Jesus so closely that there were some skeptics who believed that, Jesus, that Christians wrote Isaiah 53, if you can believe that. And I could tell you a lot of really interesting stories about skeptics who said, no, no, you can't fool me. Uh, this is talking about Jesus, and somebody must have written this in the first or second centuries A.D. Well, then the great Isaiah scroll was discovered, and it dates between 150 and 200 B.C. And Isaiah 53 is there talking about the servant of God who suffered on behalf of his people. So the Dead Sea Scrolls establish not only the stability and reliable, reliability of the Hebrew text, what we call the Old Testament, but also the Dead Sea Scrolls shed light on the world of Jesus, and in fact confirm aspects of his teaching. that Skeptics at one time argued uh, perhaps was not authentically Jewish, not available in Hebrew or Aramaic, but perhaps was an idea from a later time as Christianity spread throughout the Greek-speaking world and, and engaged the Greco-Roman cult of the divine emperor. <clears throat> Maybe that's where early Christians got the idea that Jesus is the Son of God, just like Caesar is called the Son of God. And so we end up with an exalted Christology that never really occurred to Jesus or his original apostles, but occurred only to Christians a few decades later as Christianity spread throughout the 
Greek-speaking world of the eastern part of the Roman Empire. Well, I'm afraid the Dead Sea Scrolls didn't help that theory at all. Uh, one of the Aramaic texts found in Cave 4 is document number 246. It's called the Son of God text. All we have, just one piece of leather with two columns of Aramaic, nine lines in each column. It talks about somebody who will come, the son uh, in a royal line, who will be called Son of God, Son of the Most High, who will reign forever, and he will be called Great. And when you hear that, you think, wait a minute, I think I've heard that before. And you have. If you've ever read Luke's Gospel, chapter 1, you most certainly have heard it before. These are the very words of Gabriel in the Annunciation. And he told Mary that she would give birth to a son, and he would be called Son of God, Son of the Most High, that he would be great, and that he would reign forever. And that's in Luke 1, 32 to 38, and you can read it yourself. And there it is, written in the first century A.D., and sure, skeptics were saying, that can't possibly be authentic. That can't go back to the turn of the era, to an Aramaic-speaking woman, the mother of Jesus, this is language that comes out of the Greek and Roman cult of the divine emperor called Son of God. Well, sorry, 4Q246 was found in Palestine in, in Qumran's cave number four. It's written in the Aramaic language. That's the mother tongue of Mary and Jesus. And it dates to about 50 BC, not 50 AD, 50 BC. So this language was being used a generation before Jesus' birth. It was talking about the very thing, the hopes and aspirations of Jewish people, that God would someday raise up from the royal line of David a Messiah who would be called the Son of God, who would reign forever and be great. And that's what the angel tells Mary. Let me give you another example. Uh, in the Gospels of Matthew and Luke, we have a story about John the Baptist. He's in prison. Herod Antipas, Herod the Great, has locked him up. He doesn't like the kind of things that John the Baptist is saying. He's talking about how the nation needs to repent, and above all, King Herod needs to repent too. He's adulterous. He's now taken up in an affair with his sister-in-law, Herodias, and that's the last straw. He's in prison, and we all know the story eventually he will be executed. He will be beheaded. Well, while in prison, John is discouraged. He's wondering why Jesus doesn't, in effect, break open the prison and rescue him. So he sends a couple of messengers to Jesus, and they ask him, are you he who is to come, or should we wait for somebody else? And you can read it. It's in Matthew 11 and Luke 7. Now, what's really interesting is Matthew introduces it by saying that when John was in prison, he heard about the deeds or the works of the Messiah. Luke doesn't introduce the story that way, but the actual wording of Jesus remains the same, <clears throat> where Jesus says to the messengers, go back and tell John what you're hearing and seeing, that the blind receive their sight, the lame can walk, the dead are raised up, lepers are cleansed, and the poor have good news preached to them. Well, some skeptics said, isn't it interesting that Matthew turns it into Christology? Matthew makes it in reference to Messiah. 
that you don't find that in Luke. So this is probably a Christological upgrading of this story. But then we find at Qumran, also in Cave 4, document 521, a text that talks about what will happen when the Messiah comes. The text goes on to say, the same kind of language, that the blind will regain their sight, that the uh, dead will be raised up, the sick will be healed, and the poor will have good news preached to them. Scholars immediately saw the parallels between Jesus' reply to John and this newly published text, 4Q, that is Qumran Q4, document 521. Some call it the Messianic Apocalypse. It was astonishing. But what's interesting is 4Q521 begins with the words, His Messiah, whom heaven and earth will obey. It is a Messianic text. So the evangelist Matthew introducing Jesus' reply to John by saying that John was in prison and heard about the works or the deeds of the Messiah, Matthew got it right. Matthew understood correctly that Jesus' reply was messianic. Matthew, I'm sure, didn't see this scroll from He didn't need to. This was in the air. This is what people expected, that when the Messiah came, things like this would happen. The blind would regain their sight. The sick would be healed, even dead raised up, lepers cleansed, and the poor would finally receive good news in fulfillment of Isaiah 61. But what's even more astonishing about 4Q521 is not only does it say heaven and earth will obey his Messiah, it goes on to include words and phrases that come out of the book of Psalm 146 where it talks about how heaven and earth, God has made heaven and earth and everything in it. And it is God, Yahweh, who restores the sight to the blind. It's Yahweh who raises up the sick and the lame, raises up the dead and proclaims the good news. And yet, according to Jesus, Jesus is doing that. And so not only is the passage messianic, Jesus' reply to John, but it's a very exalted Christology. It is an implied divinity. The Jesus, in fact, is acting as God. The very Christian teaching of incarnation, God in the flesh. And so the Qumran text not only supported what Matthew was saying, but ended up supporting Christian theology. The whole idea that Jesus, the Messiah, isn't simply an anointed warrior, a Messiah who, like David, will attack and kill Gentiles, perhaps defeat Rome or something like that. And by the way, the men of Qumran hoped for that, and there are texts at Qumran that speak of that. But 4Q521 implied that the Lord's anointed would in some sense act as God himself and do the deeds, not just the deeds of the Messiah, but the works or deeds of Yahweh. So 4Q521 is a huge text of great significance. Scholars are still talking about it. There are other texts at Qumran that lend to this, too. One text from Qumran Cave 1, which is called 1QSA. It's Appendix A to the Rule Scroll. It's called S because S 
is the first letter in Sarek, means rule. In 1QSA column 2, lines 11 to 12, it talks about when the great messianic feast will finally take place, when God will have begotten the Messiah. And it's using the very language from Psalm 2, verses 2 and 7. Psalm 2, 2 speaks of the Messiah against whom the nations rage. And verse 7, where God declares, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. And so these two verses from this very important psalm are alluded to in 1QS column 2. In other words, the men of Qumran expected God someday to beget, to bring about the existence of his own son. And 4Q521 says, will act with the very authority of Yahweh himself and perform wonders and miracles never before seen. And that's what happened in the ministry of Jesus. So I could cite many more examples from Qumran that show us over and over and over again that what the Gospels are talking about reflects the reality of the early first century, not the fantasy, not fiction of a later time, as the second and third century Gospels do. These later Gospels, Gnostic Gospels, heretical Gospels, they don't reflect the verisimilitude, the reality of Jesus' world at the beginning of the first century. But let me go back to some other archaeological discoveries. One of the things that we have discovered, of course, working for the last 100 years in and around Jerusalem is the discovery of more than 800 tomb complexes, uh, three or 4,000 bone ossuaries, bone boxes, have been recovered. Uh, several thousand skeletons or parts of skeletons have been recovered, many of them studied. And we have learned some things that are really shocking. We have learned that Lots of people had ill health. For example, in a third-generation tomb, we might recover as many as 70 skeletons, all belonging to the same family, a third-generation, three-generation family tomb. And what is shocking is fewer than one-third of the skeletons were of people who reached maturity. Can you imagine that today? Imagine your extended family. Think of your grandparents, your parents, yourselves, your children, and only one-third even made it to the age of 18. Because by the time you got to 18, you were considered a full-grown adult. Only a third made it past infancy or childhood. And it's from statistics like this that we deduce that on any given day in the time of Jesus, about one quarter of the population was ill or injured or in some ways in need of medical help. And then you read the Gospels and what do you read? Everywhere Jesus went, crowds followed him. Sometimes it was so bad, Jesus couldn't even teach. People were pulling at his clothes. On one occasion, he has to get into a boat, and they push the boat from the shore. So Jesus could teach the people on land and could teach them without being, uh, you know, mobbed, without having people trying to pull at his clothes or touch him. Now we understand why. There would be lots of people who were ill, 
injured and in need of help. And so the stories we read in the Gospels take on a whole new meaning. People tearing up part of a roof of a house to lower a paralyzed friend through the roof. Why? They can't get in the house. You know, they have to wait their turn, but it's an emergency. They can't wait. People are crammed in the house. The doorways are jammed. People are even in the windows. And so they calculate where Jesus must be inside. They lift up some of the roof. And by the way, we understand how the homes were built, so we know how this could happen. And the person is lowered down through the roof into the presence of Jesus. Another example, of thanks to archaeology and thanks to the ancient literatures that have been recovered from the past, we understand comments like these. When Jesus heals someone or casts out an evil spirit, and people say, wow, we've never seen anything like this. This is extraordinary. People are astonished. Well, <clears throat> thanks to discoveries, we know why they say this. What we have found are old magical texts, old descriptions of what exorcists and healers used to do. They had all kinds of rigmarole. They had charms and incantations, magic stones. Uh, they had the baras root, which they would burn. It gave off a smoke that supposedly would pull the evil spirit out through the nose. They had, of course, all kinds of rigmarole, powerful symbols on their clothing, and so forth. Then they would go through these incantations and charms. They would say things. They would invoke one deity after another. They would speak in the name of Solomon or in the name of some other Old Testament worthy. But Jesus did none of those things. Jesus would simply say, I command you, depart. The evil spirit departed. Jesus would simply say to a sick person, be well or stand up. Be open, he would say to the eyes of a blind man. Or, you, you know, you could speak, you could now hear, and so forth. And people had never seen anything like it. And that's why Jesus drew huge crowds. If there was no truth to Jesus' healing power, why would crowds follow him? If crowds did not follow him, why would the authorities in Jerusalem even care about him? Why would he have attracted any negative attention at all? If Jesus had no power, if he healed no one, if all he did was wander around and tell people to pray for their enemies or turn the other cheek, if all Jesus did was tell parables and urge people to be nice to one another, why would the authorities care? But Jesus instead healed people. He healed people as proof that his talk about the kingdom of God was legitimate, that the kingdom of God really was breaking into human society in his ministry. Dr. Evans, I so, don't mean to interrupt you. The truth uh, we, of his message and the fact that the healings took place counts for why there were large crowds of enthusiastic people pressing about him all the time. And it was these crowds pressing about him enthusiastically, calling for the destruction of the Roman Empire, calling for the overthrow of a corrupt ruling priesthood, you know, like Caiaphas. That's what made the ruling priests very nervous. That's why they were able to persuade Governor Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, that Jesus really was a menace 
and ought to be put to death. So you can see how archaeological discoveries, including manuscript discoveries like the Dead Sea Scrolls, begin to put the whole picture together. And we realize again and again, the gospel writers know what they're talking about. This is not, this is not myth. This is just legend and rumor that grew up in the passage of time. Dr. It Evans? has no roots in what Jesus really did. Dr. Evans, he can you hear thought, me? What his contemporaries saw and heard, but rather the gospels reflect the things that really happened. Dr. Evans, can you hear me? If did not, if the gospels did not reflect the, the realities, then why would archaeology support it? So these things go hand in hand. Dr. Now, I ought to say Dr. also Evans, can you hear me? about transmission of can the you hear text me across? of the Gospels. Bart Ehrman is somebody I know, and I regard him as a friend, but he and I don't agree on this. I'm referring to his book, Misquoting Jesus, and some of his other publications. Now, he has suggested in his uh, public uh, statements that, uh, <clears throat> that perhaps the Gospels are not faithfully transmitted, that there have been all kinds of changes in the Gospels, that the very words of Jesus were not perhaps recorded correctly, and there were some deliberate changes. Well, I really have to challenge that. If the text had been radically changed, then Gospels would not enjoy the verisimilitude that they exhibit. They would enjoy the support from archaeology that I've been talking about. And as far as the transmission of the text is concerned, we have very early copies of manuscripts. I have seen them all. Last June, I, was, uh, I did a tour with uh, Logos Bible Software, Faith Life. We made a documentary, which, by the way, will release uh, theatrically uh, in a few months. It's called Fragments of Truth. So we looked at the oldest fragments of the Greek New Testament. We went to Dublin, Ireland, at the Chester Beatty Museum. We looked at P45, Papyrus 45. It contains chunks, substantial chunks, of all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and the Book of Acts. We then flew over to Manchester, and we looked at... Oh, we're going to start the Q&A now? No, I don't mind at all. I wasn't real sure uh, how the time goes. But I'll, wrap, I'll just wrap this up with a comment that we looked at all the manuscripts, and uh, they're excellent. They're written by professional scribes, and many of them, by the way, were secular professional scribes who had no motivation at all to make changes. So this idea that who knows you know, if the text is the same as when originally written, there is no reason to have that doubt at all. Now, I, I, I very much welcome your thoughts and, uh, and questions that you may have. Thank you very much.